good to be here. And uh, I don't look like Tim Ackley, thank goodness. Um, he's a good looking guy, I should say. But anyways, uh, he's on a much needed vacation. And uh, so he asked me if I would, I would take today. Matthew Millen will be speaking next Sunday. Uh, I look forward to that. This uh, video we just saw just sets the groundwork for what I'd like to share with you this morning. How many of you are into MMA, mixed martial arts? You like watching it? Anybody? There's a few of you that would admit that. Any women? It's about right. There are some women who like MMA. What that is, if you're not familiar with it, is two guys will get in a ring. It's a caged ring, eight-sided ring, and they beat each other to a pulp. And the name of sport. And uh, the way you win in mixed martial arts is there's really no rules. You can, you can punch, you can um, twist and, and uh, choke and everything. You can't bite their ears off, Mike Tyson, or pull their hair. But otherwise, there's not that many rules. But the way that you win is to dominate through the five rounds of five minutes each round or you uh, get the other guy to tap out. So the title of my message today is Never Tap Out. And, and the training that these guys and girls, women are in mixed martial arts also, they go through, they abuse their bodies to the point that they can, they're so conditioned, they, people pound on them during practice so that they get used to getting hit. And, um, and they go into that ring confident that they can beat their opponent. They train so hard. They work their, their guts out, basically. I've seen some of their workouts on, on TV as they're talking about it. They have somebody just beating on their stomachs as they're doing sit-ups, and, they, and they, they get in sparring, and people are hitting them in their faces because if they did not get in condition to be able to get into the ring, they would never last. They have to be able to take a hit because you are going to get hit. So as a, I'd like to talk this morning a little bit about uh, a story of the children of Israel. We'll be looking at some of the scriptures from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I wanted to take a look at, at three phases of the training that they went through. They went through the training, they went through a fight, and then the results. Those are the three things I want to look at today. The training the fight, and the results. So let's look first at the training that God took the children of Israel through. If you look in Exodus chapter 3, we're going to start in, in verse 1. As you're turning there, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation this morning, and that will be up on the screen. But if you want to follow along, make any notes in your Bible, then, then it'll be slightly different uh, translation. But let me pray first before we... Before we get started. Father, thank you so much for this morning and that, that through your word that you give us such examples in our lives that we should never give up, never tap out, and that you will bring us victorious through to the end. Lord, take this time and use it now, God, to challenge each of our hearts and to glorify yourself. Because it's, it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll begin in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1 there. It says, One day Moses was tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of God appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it did not burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Now, in the vernacular today, he would say, this is so cool, you know. I got to go check this out. And so as we go on, it says, when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am. Moses replied, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now, as we look at that, this is the beginning of the training that God is taking Moses and the children of Israel through. Because if you read after that, the verses following, Moses is trying to make up all kinds of excuses why he shouldn't be the one to go and face Pharaoh. You know, I, I don't speak well. Uh, you know, can't you send somebody else and all this? To, and God said, you know what, Moses? I didn't save you from that annihilation for, uh, 80 years ago. He's 80 years old now. And uh, 40, 80 years ago, and put you in, in that little basket to save you for nothing, to train you and raise you up in, in the home of Pharaoh himself for nothing. Now you've been on the backside of the desert for these 40 years, and I'm gonna, it's, it's time. God remembered back that what he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would be going down into a land that was not their own for four, 400 years. At the end of that 400 years, then they were going to come back out. But they had been slaves for 400 years now. Well, not quite 400 years. But now they had to go through some training to be able to understand what God could do in and through their lives. So as we go on, after Moses was convinced that God was with him, he set out for Egypt. And Moses met with the Jewish leaders. Then he went in to speak with Pharaoh. And God knew that the king's heart would, not, would be hardened. And Moses also knew that, that the king's heart would not let them go. So that he put on this training ground was that God was going to do some pretty miraculous things to the Egyptians on behalf of of the Israelites. So if you look at chapters, you just scan through that in, in your Bibles there, in chapters 7 through 12, you'll see titles about the nine different plagues that God laid on the Egyptians. Not one of those plagues affected the children of Israel, though. You know, they had all these frogs, the water turned to blood, but over here in the Israel camp, they had, not, they had fresh water. They didn't have these flies and frogs and the lice and the locusts and the the cows dying and, and, and the darkness and the hail, all that stuff, they did not have experience that. 
God, they could look over into Egypt, into the land where all the Egyptians were, and they saw all this devastation that was going on. You would think, wow, God, you are powerful. You, you can protect us. You know, this hail is coming down. That's the Egyptians' field. This is my field. There's nothing happening here. My crops are still growing. They're bumper crops. You'd think that would be enough. But God says, I got one more, one more judgment. Even the Israelites couldn't, couldn't get away from that one. At midnight, the angel of death was going to come over. And the only way the Israelites could be saved through that judgment was that they had to take a lamb, slaughter that lamb, take the blood, and put it on the doorpost. Such a picture of our salvation. That they were saved out of that. And it says that um, this was going to happen, this tenth plague, and the only thing they could, they had to exercise faith and kill that lamb and place the blood on the doorpost. And when Pharaoh sent them away in chapter 12, the Israelites left wealthy people. Why? We see that the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. That was in chapter 12. They, they pillaged them. God caused them, you know, just take it, just get out of here. You know, they're all crying and mourning because their kids died. Their oldest animal died. Everything was just death that night. And they said, God, you are strong. And the, so the children of Israel who obeyed God and, and killed the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, they were ready to go. They had the bread, they had their things ready to go, and they took off. But God still had more training for them to go through before they were ready for the fight. Once they left Egypt, they got out into the desert, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened once again. And he said, this is stupid what I just did. I let them go. Now I have no free labor anymore. I got to start paying people to build my pyramids and all these things. So he gets all his army together, and they take off after him. And so what, what they... Um, as Pharaoh hardened his heart and they went off, they took off after him. The training ground was this, that they were on, was what they were doing was intended to build their faith in God. So that the Egyptians, as they were getting closer and they were taking, getting closer, what did the children of Israel do? We look here, it says, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen when we were still in Egypt? We said, Leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch. Watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. You know, Moses had been, came from the, the backside of Mount Sinai. God had taken him through some training and now he was being the coach, the trainer for these guys, for the children of Israel. When they left Egypt, there was close to two and a half million people that, that were 
going, leaving, and Moses was taking charge over. He says, don't be afraid. Stand still and watch what the Lord is going to do on your behalf. And this is the thing. As they were training, as God was taking them through this training, they didn't have to fight. Did they have any part in all those ten plagues that took place in Egypt? No. God did it on their behalf. When they got to the edge of the Red Sea, did they have to fight? No. God fought for them. So as he held out this staff and the waters parted, this cloud that was directing them where to go was now behind them, blocking the way for the Egyptians. They were in total darkness. They could not see or, or they didn't know where to go. So the waters parted all night long and they, they crossed over on the other side of the Red Sea. So once they were all over, this cloud lifted and came back to the other side and the Egyptian says, wow, look, at there's a path. That's pretty cool. They never thinking that this was the God Almighty who parted that water. Should we really actually go in here in this path with water on both sides of us? But they did. They, they were so bent on getting the, the Israel, is Jewish people back that they, went, they just went headlong in there. And as you know the story that the waters collapsed back on them and, and they, uh, they all died. See, he said, the Egyptians that you see today, you're not going to see them anymore. Well, there's still more training to do. Chapters 15 through 17, we see that they were thirsty, they were hungry, and they were thirsty again. All these different things. And God, once again, was proving to the Israelites, I'm your God. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am going to take you into this promised land. It's called the promised land because God promised it. And all they had to do is just obey him. So then we get into chapters 19 and 20 and God reveals himself to the children of Israel and he gives them the Ten Commandments. But more than that, he gives them this promise. It's up here on the screen. It says, Then Moses climbed, climbed the mountain and to appear before God. The Lord called to him, from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. What a promise that was. He didn't say, you're going to go out and do all this fighting. He said, no, obey me and watch me do. Watch me do the work. Just obey. That's a mighty promise that he, that he gave to his people and and through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, God was in instructing, training, and meeting their every need. That was the training ground for them, that God was powerful, that God could do what he said he could do. Now, the fight, the second thing that they, they, they get into this fight. So look over in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. We're going to look at that. He says, okay, you've been here long enough. 
it's time to go in and take possession of your land. So he says here, the first thing he does, he gives them a pep talk. And this pep talk, he says to them, in those verses, he says, when we were at Mount Sinai, the Lord our God said to us, you have stayed on this mountain long enough. It's time to break camp and move on. Go in the hill country of the Amorites to the, all the neighboring regions, the Jordan Valley and, and the hill country, the western foothills, the Negev and the coastal plains. Go to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon and all the way to the uh, great Euphrates River. It says to go there. Look, I am giving all this land to you. Go in and occupy it. For it is the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all their descendants. He says, okay, you've been wandering around this, this place. It's time to go in. As in most sports, you have scouts. High school football does it. College, professionals. I don't think the peewee leagues have scouts, but... But they go in and the scout's responsibility is to go and, and look at the other team, get some films if possible, and, and just see what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, where they're vulnerable, so that when they're planning their strategy, then they can go in and defeat the enemy. So that's what, that's what Moses did here. He said, uh, he sent in these 12 spies and they returned and this is the report they gave. They reported to the whole community that they had seen and they showed them the fruit that had been taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore and it was indeed a bountiful country. The land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the, here's the kind of fruit that it produces. But the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified we even saw giants there. This is where, for the children of Israel, the fight takes a turn. Because what God had promised them, what they had been training to do, now they look at this and they're, they're beginning to doubt. Joshua and, and Caleb give them another pep talk. He gave him another pep talk. He said, okay, this is in the locker room before the game. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, tore their clothes. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into the land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Can you imagine how frustrating that must have been for, Jacob, for Joshua and Caleb? That they were to the point they had ripped their clothes and said, Oh, come on, you guys. Look at what God did back here. Don't you think that that these people, he did all the fighting for us back then. Why can't you understand what God is trying to do? This is, it's, it's so simple when we look back at it. But here's a million people that sided with 10 of the, the, the 
spies that came back and said, oh, they're too big. The walls are fortified. We can't do it. But here's two people that said, oh, no, God has promised us that we can do this. Don't be afraid. So for the children of Israel, what were the results of the fight that, they, that God had brought them to the point where they were ready to step into the ring? The cage was going to come down and, and, they, and they had to fight these people. They tapped out. The first thing that happened is they began to rebel. There was a rebellion. The first result of their inability to trust God is that they rebelled against Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Here's what he says. It says, Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their vo voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? He says, you know what? So that's what they did. That night they plotted among themselves. That they said, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into where God had just taken them out of miraculously. Then he says, then it says that the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. They tapped out big time. They, they, they just said, you know what? We can't do this. After God doing all these things for us, we, uh, we just can't do it. So the second result of, of, the, um, of tapping out is unfulfilled promises. At this point in the game, the Lord was ready to destroy them all. He said, you know what? You guys, you're lacking faith. You don't trust me. I'm just going to destroy you all. I'll start over with Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. But God is long in patience and he, and he, and he didn't do that. So he said, instead, you're going to be wandering around the desert for 40 years. And the people who saw God's power in Egypt are all going to die. Look at what it says in Numbers 14, verses 21 to 24. It says, As surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs that I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went, the land that he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. So that, that's what he says. He says, because of that, you're gonna, your, your promises are going to be unfulfilled. The third thing that happened is that they wandered in the desert. The scripture speaks for itself, in, in Numbers 14, verses 21 to 24, it says, uh, oh, I, I wrote the same thing twice. Anyways, there, there, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long must I put up with this wicked community and its, its complaints about me? Yes, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites are making against me. Now tell them this, 
As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. You will all drop dead in the wilderness because you complained against me. Every one of you who is 20 years and older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. You said your, your children would be carried away off as plunder. Well, I will bring them safely into the land and they will enjoy what you have despised. But as for you, you will drop dead in the wilderness and your children will be like, the shepherd, like shepherds wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. In this way, they will pay for your, your faithlessness until the last of you lies dead in the wilderness. Seems kind of harsh, but when you look at it, what God was saying, you know what? You didn't trust me, but your children are going to trust me. And so you're going to wander around out there for 40 years. So as we see what happened with them, the children of Israel, through all these things, they, they had the training that God had taken them through a lot of things. So they were ready to hit the fight, the fight that they had. And the results was their failure. They tapped out too soon. Well, what about us? It's the application. It's time to apply this to our own life. We have the training ground. We go through training. In spite of our situation here in this old, small building, and, and uh, God has blessed us abundantly as a church. He has. We, we've seen God do some amazing things in many lives here and around the world as we strive to live out Ephesians 4 principle. We're going to talk about that in a minute, Ephesians 4. The Lord is, but as we look at the children of Israel, what, what God did in Numbers chapter 11, God raised up 70 leaders, verses 16 and 17. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of, of Israel. Bring them to the ta tabernacle to stand there with you. I will come down and talk with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you and I will put, it, put that spirit on them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you. You will not have to carry it alone. God is also doing that kind of stuff with us today. He says he's, he's developing leadership to equip the saints to do the ministry, to do the work. So that's where I want to take us is to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Those three verses that, that you've probably heard over and over. He says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Now, he gave these to the church. What are their responsibilities? Is to equip God's people to do the work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And they will continue until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of God's Son that, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So, as we see, we've done a lot, of, a lot of things right here at the church, but there's things that we've done wrong. Most people that, that sit in the churches, they hire pastors, they hire youth pastors, choir directors, things like that, to do the work of the church. But that's not what he's saying here. 
He's saying that the leaders of the church are raised up to equip you, to let you have the privilege of being blessed by God, to allow you to be able to serve where He has gifted you. That's where we failed as leadership. We didn't do that. We haven't done that well. We are serving in a lot of different areas and things are, are, are going well, but there's still a lot to be done. So what is our fight? What is the fight that we're going we're gonna to have? I don't know if you've um, saw this in the paper or heard it on the news or not, but there's a Christian school out in California that in order to go to the school, you have to sign a, a, con, a sort of like a code of conduct. And it's spelled out in there. It's, it's based on scripture. And, and things were going along until one day that there were two girls that were caught in a homosexual relationship. They were suspended from school. And instead of taking their punishment and accepting the results of their misconduct, the parents are now suing the school, well, how'd they put it, for um, sexual orientation discrimination. This is a, a, a church school that is now being sued for that. If that is starting in California, as they say, as California goes, so goes the nation. And, and I, I see that, that happening. If there's certain organizations that have their way, that when you hire a pastor, when you hire somebody, you can't ask them what their sexual orientation is. You can't ask them if they're even a believer. These, these things, I can see them coming down the pipe. Not too distant future. That's the fight that we're going to have um, to face. Well, where's God leading us as a church is another fight. that we, we, we're gonna have a, we have a battle. Where is God leading us as a church? We are very comfortable. We've got, we've got money in the bank. We've got elders and deacons that love God, that love the church, that love serving. And, and we're pretty comfortable here. But if we're a growing ministry, we've got large groups of people who, who are serving at Riverside or going into the prisons that are serving on on-ramps week and, and all these things. But where is God taking us? What is the next step that God is taking us into? And we've been talking about it and praying about it for the past couple of years about doing multi-siting. And as we go forward, you'll understand that even more and more. But we've purchased a building. And if you come to, the, to our annual meeting next month, it's the, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We're going to be at the Shrin Center. It's in your bulletin. I encourage you, even if you're not a member, to stay for the meeting. Because you're going you're gonna to hear what God has been directing us as leadership of the church. You voted the leadership in, the elders and deacons. You voted them in. You hired Tim. You hired me and Jason. So we've been praying for the past couple of years, God, where are you taking us and what is that going to look like? Where are you going to take us as a church? Where can we expand? What avenues, what destination do you have for us, God? Stay for that meeting and, and I think you'll be blown away of what, what God is going to, where we're believing God is going to be doing. Making plans. And we've been praying about this for a long time. The third thing is, what is your responsibility in all this? You know, when, when it says that God is raising up leadership to equip the saints, to equip you, 
What is your responsibility in all this? What is it that God gave you a passion to do? What is it that is laid on your heart? I have, I have one guy that came to me and said, Tim, I would love to quit my job and open up a deli. And that could be used to, to train people that just got out of prison or they're, they're, they're homeless and they need a job and they can... What an avenue that could be to minister to the needs of the people around our community. What passion has God given you? What he's saying is that maybe it's just taking up the offering or helping in nursery, getting involved with youth ministry or, or becoming an elder or deacon or teaching a class, whatever it is that God has given you a gift to do. We want to help you with that. So what we're going to be doing, when we, when we stand up here behind the pulpit and say, uh, we need some volunteers to help with nursery, how many, how many hands go up? doesn't work. You know, we're having a work day. Uh, everybody come out. Ten people might show up out of a congregation of 500. It doesn't work making announcements from here, asking for people to get involved. So we're going to begin doing it a little different, a little better. And so what we want to do as leadership, we want to observe, invite, equip, and send out. We want to, to get to know you as a congregation. That's why, that's why life groups are so important. So that as you're in there, your gifts will begin to come to the forefront. Your, the, 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 the things that God has made you passionate for will begin to be evident. And so as leadership, we'll see that. And we'll invite you. you, know, you know, I've seen how you, how you relate to people and you're sports-minded. Would you be willing to to head up this, this after-school basketball program for these, home, for these kids down in, in the inner city school. Man, I've seen how you do that. You relate so well. And, and, and in order for you to do that, we're going to show you. We're going to walk you through discipleship. We've got people that can work beside you to help you. And we're going to send you out and bless you and, and just expect God to do some miraculous things in your life. No matter what it is that God has given you a passion for, we want to help equip you and send you out to do what God has gifted you to do. That's a, what are the results? What are going to be the results of that? That's totally up to you. As, as do you want to see God use you even more? Can we trust Him and have faith to be radical? Can we take all that God has blessed you blessed us with and use it to reach into the darkest corners of the world where the gospel hasn't gone before. What about your neighbors next door? Are you willing to watch this? Watch this little video clip here of Noah. This is Noah. He's 500 years old. Not bad. He doesn't look a day over 350. One day, God told him it was going to rain. No, not rain, it was, it was going to flood. No, I'm, I mean, really flood. God told Noah he needed to build something that could rescue his entire family and two of every kind of animal on the earth. Let me see a football field. Okay, the ark was one and a half times as long as that football field. You built that? Not bad. 
It took Noah and his three sons 100 years to build this boat. It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's almost a million and a half cubic feet. That's the capacity of 522 railroad cars. In the 20s, the Ringling Brothers Circus traveled with their entire operation, which included 335 horses, 26 elephants, and 16 camels, and they traveled in only 92 railroad cars. What I'm trying to say is, that's a big boat. Can you imagine starting with this and trying to get to that? Is it possible that following God means that we pursue crazy big dreams that seem humanly impossible? That maybe you and I are called to do things that everybody else would think is crazy. Things that when we begin, we can't imagine where they ultimately end. We don't have to complete the journey today, but we have to begin to take the first steps to drive the first nail. We pick up the first board, step out on faith, and we begin to trust God for the rest. Amen. As I, as I think about that, I, I, I was thinking back... Um, as, as a, just a rookie being trained to be a missionary. I was in, I was in college, and uh, I had $5 in my pocket, and we had to go from Wisconsin to Michigan. I was going to be in meetings. And um, we had $5, a half a tank of gas, in a car that uh, used more oil than gas. And, uh, and my son was just uh, a year old. He was in diapers, and we only had cloth diapers back then. And we wanted to pick up some disposable diapers because that was a new thing that uh, was becoming popular. But we made a vow between Helen and I that we weren't going to tell anybody that we didn't have any money to make this trip. We wanted to say, God, you are bigger than these people. You are bigger than my pocketbook. I say wallet. Pocketbook sounds like a feminine thing. But... Uh, we told one other couple, and they began praying with us because we knew they didn't have any money either, and they wouldn't. We told them, do not say anything, but we wanted somebody else praying with us. So the day that we were to leave, after class was over on Friday, we went to the mailbox to see if there was any real mail. You know what that means, that there's envelope with money in it. There was nothing. We went into the, uh, our, our little apartment. This was one little room thing. And we sat down and had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they said, okay, Helen, let's pray before we leave. So we sat down on the couch and we prayed. As soon as I said amen, there was a knock at the door. I said, thank you, Lord. This is cool. And uh, so I went and opened the door. And, and the guy standing there said, Tim, I, I know you're leaving. And, um, but um, can I borrow your football while you're gone? <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. So I gave him the football, and, uh, and, and we got in our car, and we, we took off with uh, half a tank of gas and five bucks. We got to Chicago, where Helen's folks live, and uh, they're not believers. So we went in and had dinner with them. And when we came out, uh, I was putting Timmy in the car seat, and, and she was giving her mom a hug, and we got in the car, and, and we took off. I said to myself, God... We're in your hands now. We got enough to get to the highway, and that's about it. We're out of gas. And um, as we started the car and pulled away, she, she pulled something out of her pocket, and here her mom had slipped $50 into her pocket, not knowing anything what our needs were. And God even uses unsaved people to, 
to meet our needs. And that's the amazing thing. That was the beginning for me to learn to walk by faith. I think that, that was foundational, that, that God has taken us around the world and, and done so many neat things that we would not think even possible to do on our own, that we can't do it. And that's where we're at at the church. We have to get to the point where we're saying, God, this is impossible for us to do. We have to get out of our comfort zone. Even if we had only two months money in the bank, is God still faithful? He is. So what is this money in the bank for that we have? Why do we have this amount of money in the bank? What is it for? What does he want us to do with that? Where do we want to invest that? Where, do, where does God want to take you on that journey of faith, that step, stepping out and saying, God, you know what? I can't do this on my own. Like Noah, 120 years building that boat. He couldn't do it on his own. God instructed him step by step through the ridicule and everything. And the most awesome thing that, that we don't know what tomorrow has for us, but we do know the one who's in charge. And as we allow him his rightful place, let's just take our hands off and say, God, you know what? We're in your hands now. Even though I might have a business degree and the things that we're talking about at this meeting don't make good business sense, you are still faithful. And it doesn't matter. We want to do what you want to do, what you want us to do. We want to be faithful to you. And that's what he wants. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this morning as we stand before you, God, I am just once again reminded of who you are that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you took these, these people who were rebellious and, and, and they tapped out, but you took that next generation into the promised land. You gave them what you promised. And God, you have a plan for us here at Cornerstone. You have a purpose for each one of us being here. God, I pray that you will make that evident and real to each one of us that as we leave here, that we'll be just so anxious to, to seek you, seek to please you, and seek to understand who you are and how you can use us. Lord, we love you. We want to thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us. As we go forth, we pray that our lives will reflect your love and grace because it's for your glory and for your sake that we, we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lord bless you as you go. Thanks.